All right, hello everybody. Welcome to Ancient and Modern. Uh, tonight there's a bit of a departure. Usually we talk about democracy, ancient and modern, but really this is a series for anything ancient and modern, uh, any sort of modern use of the ancient world. And tonight I'm very pleased to have Dr. Elena Borelli with us. Uh, Elena has taught at the City University of New York, and she now teaches at King's College London, where she's a deputy team leader for Italian, Latin, and linguistics. She is the author of The Fire Within, Desire in Modern and Contemporary Italian Literature, which came out in 2017. And uh, this new book is now out, uh, Giovanni Pascoli, Convivial Poems, translated with James Ackers. And this is uh, a complete translation of the convivial poems by Giovanni Pascoli. Okay, so I wanted to focus today on Giovanni Pascoli, who's someone who kind of masterfully made use of the classical past and blended it into his uh, peculiarly modern poetry, his peculiarly modern sensibility. Uh, so let's just start out with the absolute basics for people who may never have heard the name Giovanni Pascoli, maybe not as well known in the English speaking world as he is in Italy. So. Who was Giovanni Pascoli? Oh, hi, hi everyone. <laughs> so who was Giovanni Pascoli? Giovanni Pascoli was a poet as well as a professor of classics. And this initially at the time in the 19th century was not an unusual combination and because Italian poetry and literature at that point were so uh, imbued uh, with, with classics, with, with classical antiquity, uh, and most poets were also scholars of classics. He was also a poet in Latin uh, and um, a very successful one. Every year he would go to Amsterdam uh, to the, uh, the yearly competition uh, for Latin poetry and he would um, pretty much always win a big gold medal. And thanks to these gold medals, he was able to build himself a house, a very lovely um, house uh, on the hills of Tuscany. All right, so um, Pascoli, obviously, you know, John Donne says no man is an island. So, you know, he didn't exist on his own. So maybe you could talk a little bit about his uh, poetic circles, his philosophical circles. Was he involved in any particular aesthetic movements? Yes, um, so we at the time, uh, the, the main, uh, I would say, the main trends characterizing Italian poetry were the were, were symbolism, French symbolism, uh, which was uh, which heavily influenced Pascoli, uh, both in the way he, he depicts images, natural images, um, and, and, and also in the way he also treats the classic, which was something that we probably will see a bit more in depth as. Uh, when we read uh, convivial poems. Um, Pascoli was called a decadent poet, but we know that this label uh, no longer, is no longer supported, we can say. Uh, it was decadent in the sense that um, the French poets were called les décadents uh, in a way. So um, promoting a sort of morbid sensi sensitivity and uh, an obsession with beauty. But in Italy, um, and Pascoli is an example of two, this particular um, poetic trend was declined more as a return to the origin, a return to the classics. So it would be, um, it would be in a way inappropriate to say that Pascoli was a decadent poet. It was more of a symbolist poem, poet and one in which some features of French symbolistic po poetry were um, applied to, to uh, a, a revival of the classic world. Okay, so um, so maybe decadent isn't quite the word for him, uh, but uh, if we were talking about decadentism in an Italian context, what, what other figures were kind of adjacent with, uh, with that or, or, or with Pascoli in, in some other way? Yeah, so the Bas Pascoli has had a little, an elder brother, as he called it, which is Gabriele D'Annunzio. Gabriele D'Annunzio is 
well known even outside of Italy, what once for his um, uh, affiliation with fascism, but before that for being the Italian equivalent of, of the of Oscar Wilde, of a dandy, of a flaneur, of Baudelaire. So um, there are many, many affinities between um, Pascoli and Annunzio. Mostly they have to do, uh, these affinities have to do with um, the way they see the function of poetry. Uh, at, at least for what concerns Annunzio's first period, because then when he became political, then his, his art took another completely another direction. But at the beginning, both himself and Pascoli sees poetry as 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 a as a function of beauty, uh, and by beauty um, we mean beauty of of content, beauty of form, um, and a poetry a poetry that can be sensorially enjoyed so that what we can say was the atmosphere in a way in which Pascoli and early D'Annunzio were uh, immersed. Great okay so the book I've just held up as I say it's a translation of uh, convivial poems is the English title um, so why is it called convivial poems what does that come out of? So because Pascoli was a famous classicist, there's also a famous poet in Latin, he was invited by D'Annunzio himself to take part in a project around the journal called Il Convito, which in English would be Convivium. And this journal was uh, created by D'Annunzio and Adolfo de Bosi, who was, Adolfo de Bosi was a businessman, but he was also an aesthete, an aesthetic, somebody who belonged to the movement of the aesthetic, uh, the aesthetic movement. And so the idea of behind this project was to create um, a set, to create a journal that contained works of art whose only inspiration was beauty. And that was also a political statement in itself to say that uh, the current literature, which was also inspired by, um, so was imbued with social issues, uh, was to be fought. <laughs> because that kind of literature was the expression of the democratic deluge, the gray society ruled by the mobs. And I'm using this as, you know, in D'Annunzio's words, not in my own words. So it was an elitist project, an aristocratic project meant to contrast what D'Annunzio saw as um, a society that was becoming increasingly socialist, increasingly dominated by the masses. So it was an anti-mass <laughs> project. Okay, so it's an elitist project to some extent. I mean, when you're talking about beauty, one of the things that strikes me when I was reading these poems is that it's not just uh, this sort of contemplation of pure beauty, right? And in some ways, um, the poems are marked by strong emotions and the strong emotions they're marked by are often perhaps rather negative ones. I mean, they seem to be marked by a sense of loss, a sense of things going by, a sense of belatedness, having missed out on things. Um, would you say that, that that's fair to say those are themes of the convivial poems? Uh, what, what are the themes of the, the convivial poems? Can you talk a little bit more about that? So yeah, before going into that, I'd like to say that yes, Pascoli was invited to participate in this project, but his political ideas was very far from uh, the ones that Annunzio and the Bozis had and the promoter of this project. So they wanted this project as a, as I said, as an aristocratic, uh, the, as the product of aristocratic mentality. However, Pascoli didn't share that at all. For him, the point of beauty is not to um, oppose the masses, but is to console the masses, is to offer a sort of narcotics to them too, which is meant to replace religion. So with that in mind, we have to see what he actually did with those uh, classical figures. So they didn't become, um, you know, images of superior, of a superior civilization, which is what D'Annunzio wanted to make of them, but they become icons and symbols of his own themes, his own personal uh, vision of the world, which in a way also reflects some themes of modernism and a sort of um, uh, awareness of, of, of zeitgeist, we could say. So the, the, those are figures that are Pascoli's uh, classical figures, but also they're very much uh, um, uh, 
symbols of, of the zeitgeist of the, of the end of the 19th century. So you talked about disillusionment and, and desire, and those were themes that were extremely dear to, to Pascali, as maybe, maybe of course, the uh, main uh, Anglophone audience doesn't know that, but Pascali is mostly known in Italy uh, for his particular family legend. His father was killed uh, when he was quite young and his family, the other members of the family died shortly after. Therefore, throughout his life, he, this sense of, uh, um, of longing towards childhood of, as a time that is forever lost, but can be perhaps reinstated by a beauty and by a poetry is one of the constant themes. And we see that in the convivialis too, because most of the characters, they don't want to go forward. They want to go backwards. They want to relive their past. They want to regain their youth. Uh, but not as a lively thing, not as a way that we can see that as somebody old that wants to become young again, but somebody that wants to stop living and living only in memory. Right, and then there's this other element to it, which is that the past that these people are often engaging with, maybe I should even put the past in inverted commas here, um, it's the mythical past, really. It's sort of their mythical past and also our mythical past. So these sort of... Um, um, fundamental stories, really, of Western civilization, you know, Odysseus and, and so on and so forth. So that adds another layer to this, having missed out on something, right? Because you haven't just missed out. I mean, it would be enough to miss out on, a, you know, something in your life, but you've missed out also on some of these grand stories of uh, human civilization. Yeah, so a, an Italian scholar has called Poemico Viali the Japhetic Bible of, of mankind, meaning that for, uh, for Western civilization, Greek past is our Bible. And Pascoli treats it like that, although he makes it also his own Bible in the sense that um, um, the characters on, of these stories, they repeat uh, experiences that he has done and they, um, they replicate the same disillusionment that he has had. But at the same time, I think uh, it really does appeal to this sense of loss that most of us must have experienced at some point in our life. That's why the poems are so relevant today. Great, okay. Um, I actually wanted to read some of these poems during this uh, session. And um, the one that came to mind when I was thinking of this sort of sense of having missed something, having had one of these sort of great stories pass you by is this one, The Sleep of Odysseus. Um, which is actually one of two poems by Odysseus in the work, right? The other one being The Last Journey, which is quite a bit longer. But we'll read this one. Uh, I'll, I'll read the translation, uh, which is, you know, relatively brief. Okay. The Sleep of Odysseus. Nine days and nights the black ship sailed, carried on by winds and by its helmsman's hand. Odysseus had the wheel and never let it out of his hands, for he was sailing home. Nine days and nights the black ship sailed, and his eyes never stopped looking out for his homeland in the blue haze of the sea, eager to see the smoke rise from its chimneys once again. The tenth day a dark something emerged out of the golden blaze where the ninth sun had vanished. Cloud or land? Odysseus's eyelids went down with the sunrise, and his heart was plunged into sleep. Two. Someone's homeland was coming towards him, steadfast, sailing up to the ship in the blue haze of the ocean, touching heaven with its peaks, stormy rivers down its cliffs, bushes, woods, and weeds, long green vineyards on its hills, long lush fields of wheat and grain, greening still with their new grass. It was a hard land of stone, not good for breeding horses, suited, though, to goats and cattle. On its misty mountain tops, Shepherds put their fires out at the first light of the dawn. Smoke went up the morning sky over Ithaca, but he missed it since his heart was swimming in sleep. Three, winged words were flying on the prow of the slim ship like birds squawking feebly. The ship passed by crow's peaks in its well-encircled spring. A frail grunting of hogs, a large circle of tall stones like a hedgerow around a pear tree and a hawthorn. Eumaeus, the swineherd, on the beach was peeling off the bark of a dark young oak, then cut the trunk with his axe to make a fence for the trees, and the thud of the axe mixed with the crashing of sea waves on the shore. 
But Odysseus missed it, since his heart was lost in sleep. Four, words like arrows on the prow and the poop went flying fast, fleeting and trembling. The ship faced the port of Forkin with its olive tree on top, a big leafy tree by a cave filled up with the buzz of bees as they weave their threads of gold into pots and stony urns. One could see the stony path to the city, a white well surrounded by green trees, a white altar and a house, Odysseus's noble house where tired fingers weaved and weaved an endless cloth, immortal on a web. But he missed it since his heart was drowned in sleep. Five, but when the ship was docking, the sailors opened Elis's goatskins and winds raged out. The sail unwrapped and tightened like a woman's dress put out to dry in a windy spot. And the ship sailed away from land where a young lad stood leaning on a spear, pensive under a silver olive tree with his swift dog wagging its tail and running in circles. The dog stopped at once and stared at the sea. He sniffed the track of the ship and howled at it a while, Argos the dog. But Odysseus missed it, since his heart was immersed in sleep. Six, and the ship coasted a tip of the rocky island where old King Laertes' field was. A fertile orchard it was, of pear and apple trees. The king gave his son as a boy, who followed him in the vineyard, asking the name of each tree. Thirteen pear trees, ten of apples, in a row, white in their blossom. In the shade of the whitest, an old man leant on its cane, staring at the endless sea, where the stormy waves roared, shading his eyes with his hand. His father, but he missed him, since his heart was swimming in sleep. Seven, as the winds pushed the ship away, he opened his eyes, the hero, only to see the smoke rise up from his home, Eumaeus within his fenced enclosure, his father in his field, staring at the sea, bent on his cane, perhaps his son with his spear looking out to the ship, and Argos, his loyal dog, running and wagging his tail, and his home, and his wife, weaving her cloth at the loom. All he saw was a dark something fading on the wine-colored sea. Cloud or land? And then it disappeared again, just as his heart was waking from sleep. All right, so that's great. So, I mean, this is, um, this is exactly what I meant. I mean, this is why I chose the example, but, you know, this is a great story. Odysseus, and, you know, most people know his father Laertes is there and his son Telemachus, and they're waiting for him. And, you know, if you've read the Odyssey or even heard versions of, you know, retellings of the Odyssey, you know that this is one of the great stories and it's the climax of the, one of the great stories. I mean, of course, in Homer's version, it's a, a lot of the poem is the story of his homecoming. He arrives on Ithaca and there's lots to do and he has to gather this fragile alliance and defeat the suitors. And in this, in Pascali's version, he just sleeps through it. You know, he, he could have <laughs> he, he yeah. seen it, but he, he, he just sleeps and then he, and he wakes up as the ship's going away. And he's kind of like, eh, something on the horizon. I can't quite make it out. Uh, probably wasn't important. <laughs> so it's quite yeah. an extreme case, right? Yes, it, it, we, we have to, um, to know that at that point, Ulysses was being, Ulysses' story was being re rewritten by many uh, poets in, and, and writers in the Western world. So we think of Tennyson, right? Uh, his Ulysses is a symbol of going forward, of exploring, of it's the very spirit of a, a very ex ex the very spirit of exploration, of curiosity, of human uh, desire to to uh, to go forward, exactly. But here, um, Odysseus is missing his goal, as we all miss sometimes experiences in life for distraction, for lack of passion, for uh, so. In a way, it's a much less glorious Odysseus that we see here, but a more human one. Right, exactly, um, and. Um... So this theme of desire is obviously an important one, and it's an important one to you because, I mean, you, you've basically written a whole book about it, not just in Pascoli, but also in other Italian poets. So um, so you might think, for example, that, well, you know, maybe if Odysseus hadn't been sleeping, um, maybe, you know, if he'd managed to sort of get what he desired and get back to the island, 
then he would be would have been completely satisfied and everything would have been all right so is that the approach to desire that pascally has no for pascally like for many uh, philosophers and writers at the time like for nietzsche and 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 for uh, schopenhauer desire is evil because desire is what takes us forward but never leaves us content um, and so we need to find a way of freezing this desire, of finding moments of contentment in which we are not going anywhere, but we are, in a way, as now we would say in our you know, modern language, stay in the present or stay in the moment. And poetry for Pascali is one of them. Uh, it's one of the ways in which we can freeze uh, beauty and contemplate it, and we don't need to possess it, for example, because desire is all about possessing things, possessing women, possessing wealth, possessing uh, other people, and this is the root of all evil. So Pascali sees poetry as a way of halting this wheel of desire. However, um, in, in the story of Ulysses, in the last journey, um, uh, Ulysses is, is victim of the ultimate desire. Yes, he has gotten home, he's there with his wife, and yet he's not content. Does he need, what does he, what does he want to do? Does he want to explore new lands? No, he wants to relive his youth. He wants to go back to what he has seen before. And that the, the ultimate goal of desire is that unattainable goal, which is in ultimately to relive the happy days of childhood. They are lost forever. So they're not, it's not possible to go back unless for poetry. But in the case of Ulysses, he's not a poet. Is a warrior, is a king. So what does he do? He sets out on his boat and he goes back to where he was before, trying to feel as he felt before. And then in the end, a big spoiler, he shipwrecks because that, that desire is ultimately impossible to achieve. It's bound to make us shipwreck. We cannot relive the past. Right, so, you know, it's funny because, you know, when he's on this great um, journey home, uh, the telos of that is obviously Ithaca. He has to get to Ithaca. Um, and that's been, you know, talked about in many subsequent poems like Calafi, you know, Journey to Ithaca. It's, a, uh, it's the whole point. It's a nostos. It's a, it's a journey home, right? But then the idea in Pasquale, I think, is, you know, then when you do get home, that's kind of boring. So you need, you need to hark back to, oh, I wish I was still journeying, even though the whole point of the journey was to get to the end point. So there's this kind of infinite loop. Of yes, because this is what desire, and Schopenhauer says it, it's just, um, uh, this desire takes the space between uh, pain and boredom. So uh, boredom and pain. So you are bored, and then therefore you need to get out of your boredom by desiring something else again. While you desire, you suffer until you achieve something, and then boredom ensues again. Yeah, okay, so did you want to read a bit of that uh, longer poem about, um, about Odysseus, the yes, so, last journey? Yes, we will read uh, the, the one before the last stanza. Obviously, in the last stanza, he shipwrecks and he ends up in Calypso's Island, which is a very mysterious female figure that awaits him uh, at, at the threshold between life and death. So we leave that for the reader to, to read on their own and we read the stanzas before and this is when he, he meets the sirens. And uh, the sirens was the ultimate, one of the ultimate goals of his journey backwards because the sirens held the uh, secret knowledge of everything. So he had wanted to go back and re-experience this thirst for knowledge that he had when he was young. So the stanza is called The Truth. A meadow bloomed in the middle of a sea as smooth as a cloudless sky. The siren song was too faint to be heard from that distant green dot in the sea. But the, the old hero felt a secret force flowing beneath the calm sea, thrusting the ship towards the sirens. He ordered the crew to stop rowing. Friends, our ship follows a hidden will. Let's not cover the sirens' voices with the roar of our oars. We'll hear them soon, quietly, arms on the rowlocks. That silent force, secret and sweet, pushed the ship on ever forward. And glorious Odysseus saw them at the furthest tip of the island in bloom, stretched out among the flowers, their heads idly upright on their elbows, gazing out to the motionless sea and facing the rosy light of the sunrise. They stood still and their long shadows darkened the island of flowers. Are you sleeping? The sun has risen and reaches inside your closed eyelids. 
Sirens, I am still that mortal who heard your song and lived on. That gentle force, hidden and silent, pushed the ship onward again and again. The old man saw the sirens open up their heavy eyelids and stared at the new sun or at him on his black ship. And on the deadly calm of the sea, he raised his voice loud and steady. I'm one who returns to know. I have seen much as you see me now, but everything I looked on in the world looked back and asked, who am I? That secret force, silent and gentle, pushed the ship on ever forward. The old man saw a great pile of human bones and wrinkled skin wrapped about near the two sirens, their motionless bodies standing out on the shore like rocks in the sea. I see that these old bones of mine will increase that heap. Yet speak to me, sirens. Tell me one truth, only one truth before I die, so that I can say I've lived. But the secret force was inexorably pushing the ship forward, faster and faster. Already the high brows of the sirens rose over the ship, their gaze fixed. I have but one instant, I beg you, Tell me at least who I am, who I was, but the ship broke against the rocks in the sea. Great, thank you. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I was just thinking when you were reading that, you know, if you go back to Virgil's Aeneid, the, the Odyssey and parts of that, if I remember correctly, um, you know, books three and four, I think, of the Aeneid, uh, books three, book three in particular, I think, right? Um, it, there's al al already this sense of belatedness that he's revisiting some of the places that Odysseus uh, has been, but he's a bit too late. But the thing is, you know, that's partly because the Aeneid has its own agenda and it's doing its own thing. But with Pascal, it's almost like it's this pure kind of missing out stuff. It's this pure kind of disillusionment and disappointment. And then there's the secret force inexorably pushing the, the ship forward. Um, the secret force of time, I suppose, you know, without wanting to make it too obvious yeah. um and yeah and then this desire for knowledge is very interesting as well right because it's uh you look at the italian it's almost like some kind of enlightenment idealism that he he wants to investigate and to find out and just know something and uh even that's disappointed yeah but this quest for knowledge is not an active one so it, it it's not a genuine quest for knowledge it's more like returning to the feeling that that quest, quest of knowledge inspired him. Mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, it, and so it inevitably has to shipwreck because it is impossible. While a, regular, a quest of knowledge would bring somebody forward to discover new things, to return it behind, to return backwards is impossible. It's like some scholars have called that an impossible desire to return to the womb. Know, to be reborn again. So, and what does he find uh, at the end of this quest? It's death. Right, okay, so I'm gonna go very literary now, but I mean, so as I was trying to say at the beginning, I mean, one of the interesting things for me about this is that also there's this relationship with the classical past, which in some sense is the kind of Ur mother of, of Western civilization and Western literature, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, what's going on there? Is it almost, like uh, for the reader, this um, this attempt to return to the past is also disappointed because, you know, in Pascali's text, at least, I mean, you could just read the Odyssey, but if you're within the world of Pascali, you're returning to all these storied places and it's a bit of a letdown, right? And you're seeing them from with, with these new lenses on and these new lenses are kind of fundamentally disillusioning and almost a bit depressive, right? Yeah, yet one of the things he finds out in this quest is that the things he had lived and experienced as a young person were not like that. So he finds out that Cersei did not exist, that uh, the Cyclops did not exist, they were just shepherds. So the question is, is it youth uh, giving us the illusion of things or, and then the old age sees things as they are, or, uh, or did I dream and did I dream therefore, or, um, um, or, or things have changed. But anyway, a great disillusionment ensues from the realization that the past is no longer what it was and was it like this? So that's why at the end he needs to know. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think of, for example, other Odyssey and narratives like Derek Walcott's Omeros, you know, which is a kind of Odyssey set in the Caribbean, um, there are also sort of Cyclopes and and Philoctetes and things in, in, in that, but they're um, they're new characters. I mean, it's fundamentally a new world, and it has its own interests and it has its own stories. Where it's here, it's almost like no, we're returning to the source, but the source is somehow poisoned. You know, the source is empty of water or something. I don't yeah. know what the, right, the right metaphor yeah. is. Exactly, and the root of this great desire is nothingness. So if we pursue desire until the end, be behind every object of desires, we go, we follow desire to the end. In the end, we find nothingness. We don't find full satisfaction, but we find emptiness. Yeah, it's quite Larkinian, actually. This, the, the centenary year of Philip Larkin, you know, you said that I was reminded of this Larkin poem where he says, you know, beneath it all, desire of oblivion runs. But um, I mean, Larkin was someone who was fundamentally anchored in his own world. I mean, the world of Hull, this provincial city. Whereas again, I, you know, one of the things I find my, most interesting about Pasquale is that he's re really deeply engaging with the classics and in a way that, I mean, even if you happen to be, you know, a classical, a lecturer in classics nowadays, or someone with a PhD or, you know, a bachelor's degree in classics and PhD in Italian literature, you know, it's very impressive the stuff that he knows, the little details that he picks up about the, the names of sort of obscure cult sites and things. And um, th there's also, besides two poems about Odysseus, there's also two poems about Alexander, right? And mm -hmm. it's not only that he knows the Western classics, he seems to know the Western classics also from various perspectives. And so there's this poem called Gog and Magog, um, which is about Al Alexander under the guise of, uh, yes. what's he so called? Zul Karnain? Can you explain yeah, what's exactly. going on with that? Which is a name he picks up from the, the Quran, actually. Okay, so what's what's happening with Gog and Magog? There's a crowd of people and there's a, so this is a kind of alternative myth about Alexander, I suppose. Yeah, I think this is interesting for maybe the audience for this podcast that are interested in democracy or something. This is the only poem in which Pascoli sort of aligns himself to the idea of, of the convivium, in fact, of the convito. In fact, this poem, poem fit perfectly because Pascoli was a socialist, but he was a socialist of a special kind. <laughs> um, yes, he, he believed in democracy and he believed in, uh, in the masses, um, in a way, obtaining uh, a, a status and a quality of life that the quality of life they deserve, but he also strongly believed in private property. And he, as, a, as a bon bourgeois, he was very, very much afraid of socialism as a, as, as a movement because um, he, he, he obviously was afraid that such fundamental tenets of society, such as private property, would be challenged. He, he rather believed in uh, the wealthier being charitable <laughs> towards the poorer. So in a way, it was, a, it was kind of a patronizing form of socialism. And Gog and Magog is an example of that because it's a poem that puts into play uh, a mob of barbarians that were being kept at bay by the myth of Alexander, by a rule that Alexander had devised by putting uh, some trumpets on the fortress that would make the barbarians believe that he was there. When they found out he's not there, they come and take the empire. Right, so this is one in which it's a bit funny because the kind of the disillusionment here is almost, it, it, it's not that pessimistic from the point of view of the barbarians, right? Because they, they think that they're being blocked by this great hero and the, this great sort of defensive mechanism, but actually it's kind of a scam. And once they realize that, they can just go and then it says the world was their bread or something. They just stream yeah, through. But that it's is a very fantastical poem because it, it, it's, a, this, it's a narration about the end of civilization. And we right. know that it's, a, it's the fear of, yeah. of, of the end of civilization as we have known it. And we know the fears of this kind haunted uh, the, the imagination poets and writers at the end of the 19th century. Right, so yeah, it's the sort of nightmare vision of the horde breaking through. Um, so yeah, maybe it's too unsubtle to, to ask, you know, what was, is he trying to say, you know, we need to believe, we need certain myths that, that people can believe in or? Um, well, he had this idea that everybody had to be um, fraternal towards each other, that we had to be, um, he, he didn't believe in technological progress as a way of ensuring welfare for everyone, but he believed in a sort of social pact and agreement by which 
nobody would have too much <laughs> and we would all have enough, which goes back to the idea of desire as the root of all evil. Nobody would want to have more than any other. But obviously that's quite idealistic and deep inside he knew that there was no way of stopping uh, the, the, the masses as a new phenomenon of modernity. They would come and take what they, <laughs> what they wanted, what, what their right, you know, what their what was their right. So these fears, really, really fear of the mob, <laughs> you know, fear of communism in a way, it really, really haunted his, his imagination. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so one of the other aspects of this is that um, one of the other aspects of his engagement with antiquity is that um, he's very much a, he's a learned poet. You know, he's what the Romans would have called a doctus poeta. And that learnedness, that learning, I suppose, it extends not only to the little scraps and details of history, but also to what he's doing on the level of prosody um, and in terms of the structure of his poems. Um, there are poems like, I think, the first one in this collection, Solon, where he puts in you, a version of sapphic stanzas. You know, he's actually writing in this pretty complex and obscure ancient meter. Um, for the most part, though, he seems to be writing in the, uh, in the Italian tradition, uh, or, well, not for the most part, I should say, but often, or sometimes at least, he's writing in these Hendrika syllables, right? Yeah, he, he often uses traditional meter, so it doesn't disrupt that tradition. If, if Italian poetic tradition in the 19th century was based on a solid metrical uh, structure so it, it, it was not dataistic at all like to, just to be clear but um it does enrich if anything that tradition by adding new meters like the epilion for instance like or the the, um, the sapphic meter in the first so he, he had an extent he has extensive knowledge of, of greek literature and he was able to replicate in italian those ancient meters which is quite an achievement right um what what what's innovative it's it, it's the content it's images which completely disrupt that meter and the language because the language is italian but it's an italian that sounds like greek in the sense that he uses forms and syntactical structure that are very much reminiscent of the epic poems or greek poetry at large Okay, so we've actually gone a bit faster than I thought, so we've got a bit of time. So I thought maybe we, we would uh, read out a little bit of Alexandros, which is a shorter poem than Gog and Magog, but it's also about Alexander, you know, Alexander the Great. Um, and, yeah, and Alexander uh, fits very well with what we've talked about before yeah. about desire, because Alexander is another Ulysses. He looks for something beyond. He keeps conquering land, but to what extent? Like he's, vic he's a victim of the wheel of desire. He keeps going forward and forward until he reaches the end of the world, or what the ancient thought was the end of the world. And then wh what else is there? Nothing. That's right. So even some of the ancient uh, historiography, you know, some of the ancient his historical sources, they talk about this, this pothos, this desire that drives Alexander forward. And, you know, when I'm lecturing on Alexander every year, I, I even have to sort of put that in because I always think, why does he keep going? <laughs> why are his campaigns still going? It's sort of un un still unclear. Yeah, he keeps going. And that's, that's the root of his, of his downfall, in a way, actually in history, because his, 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 his army then rebelled against him. And in the poem, he keeps going, he keeps, and that's, that's evil. Pascal, it can only lead to disillusionment. It can only lead to the sentence in which we will read, which is, it was better to stay behind and dream. Okay, so maybe we have time to read a couple of these sections then. So again, it's a numbered section. So what I want to do here, because this one is in Hendrik syllables, and I know Akerst and Borelli have taken pains to um, mirror the actual syllabic basis of this of these lines and also to try and get the the rhyming right i think it's sort of a b a b c b sort of thing right right which is kind of like totorima or not quite but it, it's um yeah we we i think we decided at most places to render the endica syllables with either a tetrameter or a, um, a, a line a line with three beats yeah, yeah. Uh, just to replicate the rhythm, this predictable rhythm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Italian ear is quite used to the endeca syllables. It has a very predictable pattern, which yeah. makes it almost like a lullaby. 
Uh, I think this one is uh, supposed to be a kind of exact echo, but anyway, why don't you read out section one in Italian and then I'll, I'll read a, uh, the translation out in English. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just one note, you will not hear this predictable rhythm in Italian or maybe in our English either, just because the, the way syntax is built is meant to disrupt so the, the, the predictable pattern. That's one of the features of Pascoli's poem, to create a very simple and predictable um, metric structure and then disrupting it inside uh, with, uh, with the syntax. Alexandros, giungemmo è il fine, o sacro araldo squilla, non altra terra se non là nell'aria quella che in mezzo del brocchier vi brilla o pezzeteri. Errante e solitaria terra inaccessa. Dall'ultima sponda vedete là, mistofori di caria, l'ultimo fiume oceano senza onda. O venuti dall'Emmo e dal Carmelo, ecco, la terra sfuma e si profonda dentro la notte fuggida del cielo. We have arrived, the end. Herald, proclaim it. No further earth but that up in the heavens, that crescent that now shines down on your shields. My soldiers, a wandering earth, forsaken, unreachable. And from this final shingle, you see it there, my mercenaries and pikemen that final stream that runs without a wrinkle. Oh, you who come from Hymon and Carmelus, look how this earth dissolves and starts to mingle with the midnight sky, with its shining darkness. Fiumane che passai, voi la foresta immota nella chiara acqua portate, portate il cupo mormorio che resta. Montagne che varcai, Dopo varcate, sì grande spazio di su voi non pare, che maggior prima non lo invidiate. Azzurri, come il cielo, come il mare, o monti, o fiumi, era miglior pensiero ristare, non guardare oltre, sognare, il sogno e l'infinita ombra del vero. Streams that I forded, you will carry with you the wood's silence, with you the river's murmuring will carry. Mountains that I climbed, and after you climbed them, the world you looked down on seemed less unbounded than it had seemed when it was hid behind them. Blue like the sky, blue like the sea, oh mountains, oh rivers. Perhaps it would have been better to have your dreams and not to look beyond them. A dream is an endless shadow on what's there. So this is all... I, I, I think we, we could only read two, really, but I, I think this is a really good place to pause because um, it's also Pascal, isn't it? Like this bit, uh, the world, after, after you climb the mountain, the world you looked down on was, seemed less unbounded than it had seemed when you, before you'd done the mountain climb, right? Because it's kind of like, oh, the world's such a big place. Oh, now I've done it. So, you know, the things, you, what, there's the, the Italian singer-songwriter Guccini who has this line, the things... Um, that you've actually experienced, and then you know that's kind of it. What's the yeah. line? I don't remember. You know better than me. <laughs> I haven't listened to it in a while. We'll come to it. Um, yes, and it's also like the, the revelation of the mechanism of desire. An object seems so seems so big when you desire it, but when you have it, it looks so small because it makes you ready for the next one. Oh yeah, this is the line I was thinking of, the, the, the things dreamed for and then seen, the cose sognate ora viste, viste. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so uh, it's a really similar thought. Yeah, and then the, the final line is a cracker. That, that's really Pascally in a nutshell. Dream is an endless shadow on, on what's there. Uh, you know, strictly it says, yeah, the dream is an infinite shadow of the, of the true, of the truth. And what, that's why poetry is better than reality, because poetry can freeze that sense of endlessness that you have before you when you desire something. Poetry is powerful. And like Pascoli says in the last journey, it's a sea inside a small shell. So in a small shell, you can hear the sound of the infinite waves. But when you actually have the thing, you realize it's much smaller. So it's best in a way not to live, according to Pascoli, to, to, to nurture yourself with poetry and not to experience life, because it's best to dream than living. Yeah, okay, so that, that's, it might seem like a pretty hardcore kind of pessimism, but it's still, it's one step away from some of the ancient authors themselves, like Sophocles, you know, they, well, maybe it wasn't Sophocles' thought, but you know, there's this thought 
better to never have been born. You know, that's, that's the best thing of all. Calypso says in the last journey, and in a way, oh, it's also what Schopenhauer would say in the world as well as representation. Yeah, so that's um, it's quite it's quite a sort of um, it's quite a tough, uncompromising vision in the end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that Annunzios is Pascoli's friend, competitor, like little brother, whatever he called them, he went completely the other way. He wanted to consume everything. So he spent his whole life achieving things, desiring things, whether they were women or, or, or social success or literary fame until he basically died <laughs> in this chain of desire. So he went completely the other way. But Pascal lived a very subdued and lonely life <laughs> in the house he had bought with, the, with his poetry. Okay, so I wonder whether we can end with, because um, I mean, we're not even up to an hour, but that's fine. But let's just add one more thing, because I think actually this is gonna really beautifully um, bring together this theme of kind of, um, you know, the exhaustion of desire and the inevitable sadness of that, but also hopefully finish us on a reasonably high note, <laughs> because there's also the sense of kind of the song living on, poetry living on, um, yes, that, yeah, that's exactly where poetry, you know, has a meaning. It has the meaning of um, crystallizing desire and making it immortal, making immortal that longing, that rush of emotion that you have when you see something as extremely beautiful. But instead of catching it, instead of uh, then emptying with possession, then you contemplate it forever in its crystallized and eternally beautiful. And that brings us back to Antiklos, which is one of the poems of this collection, which we decided not to read for the sake of time. But that's what he does with the figure of Helen. Helen is the quintessential desire. Like everybody desires Helen. And that's why we had this war, the, war, the, the Trojan War. But when one of the warriors meets Helen, and Helen is about to give him what he wants, which is the voice of his, his wife, anyway, to, to incarnate his own desire then he stops her because he just wants to contemplate that eternal beauty without actually achieving what um what he was supposed to achieve by meeting helen yeah so it's a little bit schopenhauer but a little bit plato as well right this idea of the eternal forms yes um but i, I what i was going to suggest was to, to end with um because this also continues you know, the thing we were talking about before uh, about Pasquale's formal mastery, his mastery of form. And I was going to suggest we read a little bit of the, uh, or maybe the, just the Sappho parts of the, um, of the very first poem. I don't know. Do you want to do it in Italian and English or just English? I think we can read the part about uh, the, 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 the immortal, um, you know, um, the, how poetry makes everything immortal, which is the last of Sappho's songs, the song about death. What do you think? Yeah, okay, what I'll do is I'm going to read the first little sapphic bit because that'll yeah. take us down, as it were, <laughs> in a very kind of passively manner. And then then why don't we do the final, what is it, four? It's only uh, four or five stanzas in Italian and English. Is that okay? Yeah, so should they start with uh, the last of Sappho songs or the first well, one? Well, let me, I'll, I'll start, I'll read the bit Gardens Shine yes. and Silvery Moonlight. Okay, I'll start that and then and we'll move on. So, okay. So Sappho, hmm? gardens shine in silvery moonlight, apple trees resound a silvery ring the whole night. Through the mountains blue as the sky is, a soft whispering wind blows, moaning on, then hollering through the canyons, through the level oaks. But the wind is softer running through me. Nevertheless, it's love, strong, ringing my strength out. He's as far from me, from my glistening hair, as the sun, that's true, but he gets to my heart like the sun, a beautiful man, yes, like a beautiful sunset. Fade away, that's all I want at this point, turning into light that flows out from his sun. Furthest rock in dazzling splendor, out there proud in the sea wave, sweet to climb right down where the calm is, as the sun goes down an infinite ocean, a peace follows on, that peace after sunset, that peace trailing the day's end. All right, so let's try and do the, the, then this next section. You can do Toli il Pianto down to the end, and I'll follow that up. That'll be a nice little ending, I think. Yes. Togli il pianto, è colpa. Sei del poeta nella casa, tu. 
Chi dirà che fui? Piangi il morto atleta, beltà d'atleta muore con lui. Muore la virtù dell'eroe che il cocchio spinge urlando tra le nemiche schiere. Muore il seno, sì, di Rodopi, l'occhio del timoniere. Ma non muore il canto che tra il tintinno della pectide apre il candor dell'ale. E il poeta, finché non muoia l'inno, vive immortale, poiché l'inno, diano le rose e dita, parte del peplo, a noi non s'addice il lutto, è la nostra forza e beltà, la vita, l'anima, tutto. E chi voglia me rivedere, tocchi queste corde, canti un mio canto, in quella tutta rose rimireranno negli occhi, saffo la bella. Questo era il canto della morte, e il vecchio Solon qui disse, chi lo impari e muoia. I was going to skip that little last bit because it sort of brings us down again. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll do the English version. Oh, love being down. <laughs> the English version of the sapphic stanzas. Uh, cry no more at home with the poet. It's a sin. Who will tell men who you once were? You cry for athletes passing. Ah, but an athlete's beauty dies with the athlete. Like the hero's courage in battle, driving onward through the enemy's ranks. That dies too. So the heaving breast of the maiden dies, the plots of the helmsman. But a song lives on through the lyre. It lives on spreading the truth, opening up its bright wings. As the song lasts, so does the poet also live on, immortal. Don't then tear your clothes in a useless mourning. That's not our style. Song is our strength, our beauty. Song is all life. Song is our soul. A song is all that there is. If you want to see me again, just touch these strings and sing my songs, and at once I'll be there, eyes upon me as when I flowered on Lesbos. Beautiful Sappho. So that's beautiful. I mean, it's, uh, it's great because, you know, again, this is a steep engagement with the classical past in the form of you know, Eponician odes, uh, you know, Pindar's poems about athletes, or maybe Bacchylides' poems about athletes that he also references in another poem about the uh, old men on, on the island of uh, Kia, or Chios. And then there's the hero's courage in battle. You know, obviously there's a poetic tradition of Homer and so many other ancient poets to do with the glory of the, of the warrior. Uh, the plots of the helmsman, there's probably Odysseus again, and, you know, love poetry, the breast of the maiden. And, um, But anyway, this, the sapic poetry also lives on and the classical past, the poetic past lives on through Pasquale and, and Pasquale also lives on through this. Yes, exactly. Nice. So he was right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. <laughs> and he lives on now in the Anglophone world as well, thanks to us. Yes. And the Italica press as well. And so this book can be found on Italica's website and also in every good um, online outlet. And of course, if they don't have it, they're not good. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and we will be doing some events. I know James will be doing some in New Zealand and I will be doing some in London. So, um, you know, stay tuned. Okay, well, thanks very much, Elena, for joining us and talking to us about uh, Pascali and Pascali's context and the convivial poems. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs>